host Jennifer Vaughn. Hope you're all doing good and well. So last week I introduced you to my friend Ken Pinkella, 29-year decorated army veteran who was court-martialed, jailed, and discharged from the U.S. military on false claims that he transmitted HIV to a fellow soldier. I would encourage you to go back and listen to part one if you haven't already heard it, and it will really paint a clear picture of what Ken has experienced and will make part two more clear. Also, you'll hear Ken refer to Timmy in part two, and that is, of course, in reference to the Berlin patient. Timothy Ray Brown, who sadly passed away from leukemia last year, was the first person cured of HIV. He's now one of several men cured. You can Google his story. His cure was linked to a bone marrow transplant from an earlier bout of leukemia, and that donor carried a specific rare variant of a cell surface receptor, a lot of big scientific words there, basically that resists the HIV infection. So obviously his cure regimen being a bone marrow donation isn't a practical solution for the masses, but there's always hope that it's a window to an eventual cure with the right research. Ken also brought up his friend Peter Staley, and we got stumped in the moment on the name of his documentary. It is called How to Survive a Plague. I highly recommend watching this as it clearly and really painfully presents what happened in the early years of the epidemic with the United States and how research and treatment were literally ignored by basically a homophobic government until a group of activists refused to be ignored anymore and they demanded change and boy did they get it it's a heavy one for sure but everyone should be aware of this history ken and i also talk about the cure for hiv of course as well as the new injectable that's out on the market now cabanuva thanks again for tuning in here's the rest of my chat with ken Pinkella. i can't imagine what it must have been like that whole time knowing that this was all based on false information lie. Yeah, yeah it's all a lie. lie someone else's lie and, and you know and, and i really do appreciate you letting me kind of tell a little bit about those other pieces because it does include the the hate and stigma that still exists about the lgbtq uh, community mm-hmm. anybody other than seems to be white christian americans they find ways to come at us you know the black and brown community has been attacked forever um i I always say my white privilege, which I acknowledged in my life and I work for everything, but I acknowledge that privilege. It didn't help me or do anything for me. My status as a gay man in the military living with HIV was all they cared about that all they cared about. So it didn't matter what evidence was there or not there. It didn't matter. My whole family was in the house and you know, there was evidence, literally evidence that I was never alone with this person. It didn't matter. It was like I say, they wanted the faggot out of the building and it was an HIV related thing and they just came after me. Uh, even though Don't Ask, Don't Tell was turned over that year in 2012. Mm, okay. Yeah, yeah. Man, yeah, I get the comment all the time on my videos, um, you know, you needed to sue him. That was the first thing I get about the person that I contracted HIV from. And I'm always like, I'm blown away by that. I'm like, well, I was a willing participant. He didn't even know he had it. I mean, why am I going to sue him? Well, you need to sue the the office that, you know, the medical office that didn't get a hold of you. I'm like, okay, well, there was that maybe, but I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to sue anybody, but it's funny that that's the first thing. Um, there was somebody that I had on recently. Um, it was last week and she contracted HIV after the second date with somebody who 
he he knew he had it unfortunately um he was detectable and he kind of tried to put it on her but she had been tested before knew she didn't have it so she knew she got it from him and uh some people had written and said well she should call the police like she needs to call the police and i'm like well but she was participating like she chose not to have him wear a condom so she's you know i don't want to say guilty but i mean you have to be responsible for your own sexual health yes and i've learned that a lot through advocacy and yep. and um yeah, just being around people that are HIV positive. So it made me, and I also have learned through advocacy that when anybody with HIV is criminalized, it affects all of us. Like I'm, yes. I look like a criminal now because I have HIV. The more you criminalize it, the more stigma it has, and then it affects all of us. Yep. So I always try to remind people, like, do you understand that when you tell that person that they need to call the police on them, that affects me. Yep. Like, do you get that? Like, but it's a hard thing for people to understand. They just think criminal. HIV or somebody bad, they did something bad. I'm not saying there's there's not people out there that um, are not being responsible for sure, but right. that's not the majority. So, right. and you know, and you're very right in that all of us need to, you know, have that same that same dialogue. That what makes HIV criminalization so different is HIV, not necessarily the virus, but the 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 development of the early days when we couldn't get the president of the United States to even recognize and say that word or, or as, as the numbers of death were increasing, he wouldn't move. Um, and then when we finally got there, we had his attorney general who thought that somehow adding a criminal element mm. to the bills, the original uh, money going out on the federal side, that using the criminal courts to help public health was the right thing to do. And, you know, so we're fighting almost 40 years now of that. It's like someone said, we should have called the cops. And why was there, did someone get assaulted? Was there, did someone willingly do this? You know, and I, and I've got caught on that. There's some advocates that, that have a little pushback and you know, this is my perspective. If I find out, and right now I only know of one case where someone was convicted, and in my world, rightfully convicted, for criminal malicious intent to actually infect people. There was the, the guy over in London who they had all of his text messages, all of his emails, where he was actually taunting his victims that he did it with a criminal malicious intent. Mm -hmm. take HIV out of it. And there are laws that could handle that act, but we fight the HIV stigma. So because it was HIV, it got, you know, blown up more. And you're right. That one case hurts all of us mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. there is this automatic belief. Well, like the prosecutor said to me, well, HIV positive. So it must've been you. Right. It must've been you just because we, you, I have the courage to live and serve the nation, you know, living with HIV, undetectable, you know, fit for duty every year from the medical folks. But because there's this stigma and idea, the prejudice overrides everything. Well, your HIV positive must have been you. Well, it couldn't be anything else. You know, it's just, we are fighting um, not just a criminal mindset, but a cultural mindset um, because of the way HIV was mishandled right from the get-go. Um, totally. Yep. Yep. And then, so you're, you're released from prison or jail um, in Germany and you come home and no, wait, Fort Leavenworth. Oh, Fort Leavenworth. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, Where yeah. is that again? I'm sorry. 
Kansas. Kansas. Okay. Leavenworth, Kansas. So, and then you're in New Jersey, right? I'm in New York. New York. Okay. I knew yep. East Coast somewhere yeah. over there with a new. And, yep. um, and so then you are no longer able to be in the military and make a living. Right. So I, um, I, th- I tell you one of the hardest things was to come home and I lost my house. Yeah. So I, when I say I lost it, you know, I, I of course had no income. Um, I hadn't paid my mortgage for a few months. My parents, in uh, it was their own reaction and the way that they dealt with their own uh, depression and anxiety and fear of everything. They thought that they could try to take on my mortgage payment. Oh. So yeah, the, 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 there are so many numerous in the, the circle of damage just grew and grew and grew. So of course I sold my house. I had to just, I almost had to short sell it just to get rid of it, which was sad because that was my big investment that when I retired, I could, you know, all those plans that I had to retire, which was signed. Um, but when I had to, I had to rent a truck and my mother and I alone had to try to empty my home into that truck and walk away. Um, that was a, that was a moment that, you know, made things all too real, but how lucky I was that I at least came home to family and friends and a roof over my head. Mm-hmm. Um, because as you said, I still can't get employed. Um, it is not only the conviction, it is my age and experience. So people have said, well, you know, why don't you just go, go apply for, you know, whatever lower level job, whatever stuff. So what they don't get is not only is it when I have to tell them about the conviction, which you still have to. And if I don't disclose that, that's a felony. So I have to tell them about the conviction and say you get through that. It's some low level job, low level, meaning not at a job executive level, like I had left. You, you walk in with an, with an MBA and 29 years of executive service from both Congress, the white house, the Pentagon and around the world. Yeah. I kind of just, you're too qualified. <laughs> totally. So I usually don't make it that far, but usually it's the conviction that just kicks me out. Um, and, and I, and I, I'm the VA, I'm in the employment program now with the VA and sadly my little counselor is a great guy. He doesn't get it. He doesn't understand, you know, I keep applying and I send back the rejection notices and, you know, he just doesn't, it's very, it's a, it's a unique situation. Um, but for me personally on the day-to-day basis, you know, I, I, I'm unemployable. Yeah. So you you don't have a job, you lost your house and you were told your retirement was also not going to. Yeah. So I wasn't allowed to retire. So that was taken away also. Yeah. And then, then they did approve the dismissal. In the dismissal, and I'm not exaggerating when I say this, it's a click of a button and you're erased. So it's as if 29 years, I would never existed. My God. And that that hurt me the most amongst other things. Everything obviously has a different layer of, of hurt. Um, but with that, I obviously lost all my benefits. But because I was injured so long ago, um, which is kind of a cool, fun news, good news story, um, there were very few of us that were actually injured in the first Gulf War. Again, I spent a year in Walter Reed. Um, what was your injury again? Because you wrote on one of my posts. Were you sure? Yeah. I, I had a round go off my cheek. Yeah. You yeah. okay? So we did. Yeah. We yeah. That's what I said. That. Another little thing. I was like, I don't talk about that much. But when you said that, okay. I, like, I didn't realize we had so much in common. <laughs> we both have HIV and we've both been shot. Crazy. Okay. Yeah, I've wow. got, but I went to prison and you haven't. So I have. No, I'll have to try that one next. Yeah. 
<laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah. Okay. But um, so the American Legion, the VSOs, you know, there was that gap really between combat periods. We had the Vietnam era, well, a lot of mishandled things. And we, you know, the, those veterans and I'm willfully, I'm willfully so grateful to the Vietnam era guys and gals for screaming and yelling for what they deserve because I think what I have is uh, a lot of what they did. And then the advent, sadly, of you know, 18, 20 years of, of, of concurrent conflict with an Afghanistan-Iraq uh, deployment. Mm-hmm. I didn't know it. They had done my discharge compensation application because I left, I was always on active duty. And this is a little nuance we don't have to get into, but I went from serving active duty to the regular army, which is known as Compo 1. And then I went to active duty serving the Army Reserve, Compo 3. So active duty the whole way through, just a different pot of money. You either the regular army, the National Guard, or the Army Reserve. There are active duty forces that support all three. Um, but bureaucratically it's a little break in service 24 hours a little like you don't lose anything but there's a break well they had done my application so when i came home and i realized i'd lost everything i had called the va because it was like is there any way i can get in i needed to find out could i get my meds i knew nothing about adaps and nothing about ryan white i mean i knew nothing right. i was very lucky and you know and very privileged to have a military career where i mean access to the best medical care and here I was with no experience to civilian insurance and all that stuff. And uh, it was just great. There she was an older woman at a call center for the VA out of Phoenix, Arizona. And I remember this. And she's honey. And she goes, what, what is this? Let me look in this. She's pulling my stuff. She goes, but you already have an adjudicated finding. And I was like, no, I don't. She goes, honey, I'm looking at it. You already have 50%. Oh, but I see that it was it was inactive. Did you stay on active duty? I said, yes, ma'am, for another like 19 years. She goes, oh, well, here, this is what you need to do. You need to request that that is basically reinstated. I'm like, okay. Okay, let's and do she that. Walked, she walked me through that process. We did the reinstatement. They can't take that away from me. And we got that reinstated. So I got my 50%, but that was from back in 1991. From 91 to 2016 had never been evaluated. And that's what I'm fighting now. Actually, I've had a number of appointments just in the last few weeks because I'm getting help with the New York State uh, Department of Veteran Affairs. Um, got a great guy who knows my story, knows everything, has all my records. I have multiple discharges. I have three honorable discharges. And then sadly, which doesn't make sense, they characterized my discharge from the court-martial as other than honorable, not dishonorable, which doesn't make sense, which I'm grateful for if I have to be grateful, but there are so many things about what they did to me. Nothing makes sense. It's, did someone think, oh, well, we screwed them over. So we don't need to characterize them at that level. I, well, even the attorneys go, who the hell did that? And it's just another one of those, nothing makes sense with my, my case. This, but, uh, the dishonorable discharge, I'm sorry, just re- really quick. There was something about the flag, you having a flag at your service. Uh, yeah. And so I remember you were telling me about that. So that is not something that you will have, or now you w- you could have that. Yes, I have that back. Okay. I, that back. I remember that in yep. 2018, yep. that was something yep. that had been taken from you. Okay. Right. Because I hadn't yet, at, in 2018, when we were at the International AIDS Conference, I yet, I didn't have the determination for the 50% to be turned back on. Okay. So since we did our first chit chat, 
Um, yes, um, my 50% disability was reinstated. And with that, at least when I die, I know my mother, well, if I die before, but my family would, you know, I would have a flag in my coffin. Right. Because up, up to that point, I did not. Yeah, I don't know. It means a lot to you. In fact, I was just thinking as I'm hearing all this thinking, do you miss the military? I miss it every day. I loved my job. Wow. I loved my job. I can say that quickly. Mm-hmm. I, I miss it every day. Um, I was was in the, I was a force manager and at the time was the chief synchronization officer, everything in the army. God, it's so funny when I tell people this, my brain goes there. There, there, there was a time when any, any action, whether it was personnel, new equipment, a new unit, uh, the inactivation of units, new flat, I mean, you, anything, budget, anything, somehow went across my desk. And I loved, I mean, I loved my job. Uh, it was just, if I couldn't have soldiers as a commander, I was taking care of all soldiers um, and their families. And just, uh, I do, I miss it terribly. Wow. I really miss it terribly. Yep. You know what else I find really interesting about you? Okay, so you're gay, but I find that you're quite liberal. Those are two things that I never think of with the military. Yes, are you not? Oh, yeah, I yeah, know. no. Yeah. I mean, I it's so interesting to me that this is what you felt this, um, you wanted to be around that type. I mean, there's definitely a type for the military. And it's yeah. Republican, and it's, well, straight. Very conservative. I mean, yeah, so that's yeah. it's interesting to me. I, I find that fascinating about you. Yeah, no, thank you. That's really, it's, I, I thank you for noticing that because there is that um, stereotype and it's mm-hmm. usually legit, pretty straightforward. Um, but how many other non-conservatives, whether gay or straight in the military, there's quite a few of us. But of course, with the Hatch Act, politics is, you know, is a no-no. We don't talk about politics. That's what so you, so you have to be silent about kind of how you feel. As yeah, far as well, politics, in the, yeah, yeah. if you're not on board with the majority, you just don't talk about it. I will tell you just a very a quickie. I got into a fight, an argument with a professor when I went to the command general staff college I, at Leverworth, mind you, years before. Um, and there was an old belief that still exists today. General Pershing, Blackjack Pershing. General Pershing believed that specifically officers Officers should never vote while they were in service. He believed that. And I absolutely countered that. Um, from the day that I was commissioned, I carried a copy of, and I'm looking at my, either in my pocket or when we got the sleeve pockets, I carried a copy of the Constitution from the day I was commissioned to the day I left. And it was actually another fight because when I went to jail, they took my Constitution away. But they, they could have said I could have kept a Bible. I'm like, well, I'm an atheist. I want, it's the constitution. Look at it. It's all it is. There's nothing in there, nothing nefarious. They took it from me. That pisses me off. So I love putting that little thing out there. But um, I got into a fight with my professor about that. that there was this, this, this cultural belief that when you were in service and specifically as an officer, you had to disassociate yourself with probably the most cherished right as an American that the founders gave us. And it was that participation. Now, yes, understood that you couldn't openly participate in politics while you were in service. Um, Got it. But the idea that you were not even supposed to exercise your franchise right to vote. 
I know, and it was a huge pushback. And I remember when I took it out of my pocket, and I slapped it on the desk because he had really ticked me off. And it was, a, it was, a, it was a. We went to, we went to good verbal blows about it. That I was a citizen before I became an officer, and I didn't stop being a citizen when I was commissioned. And that one sacred right was what I volunteered to go fight and die over. And you were asking me, or somehow believing that Jack Blackjack Persian was right to tell. <laughs> officers that we shouldn't vote and it was it's still culturally within the military and that's that conservative you know nature of the beast um yeah yeah but there there are there are more open-minded liberal democratic people in the military but generally yes they're generally you know rather conservative yeah um folks yeah that's what fascinates me because you've gone through all of this which is incredibly negative about you know concerning your character you're very liberal and you're gay and like but you miss this job i i love that about you it's very special well, yeah i mean it is special there's a sense of duty and i grew up in in my grandfather before he passed when i would come home on visits and things he'd always asked uh that generation well are you happy are you happy what you're doing are you going to stay in that job because mm-hmm. if you're happy stay in there he, he used to call me fighter stay in there fighter um and I was happy. That's why it's so quick when I say I miss it because I was happy. I never had I never had a problem. I never got in trouble. I loved taking care of soldiers. I was I lived around the world. I mean, I, I was working and informing you know decisions at the presidency level, the secretary level, congressional. I mean, you were in the thick of it. And how how what an incredible privilege that was is what you know. I know I need to write my life story down. Um, oh, yeah. I, did. I, I had some, I, I did, I, I had some incredible interactions and in, in, in events in my life and, and I did, I loved it. I, I yeah. miss it. Miss yeah, it. I've yeah. only known you as Ken, not out, not in the military. And I yeah. always, yeah. I'm always like in my mind, visualizing you in your uniform, yeah. being very professional, doing the salute. And I'm like, man, like that was his life for a long time. Yeah. 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 Unreal. Yeah. So where are you now with everything? What's what's happening um so you know at least on the military appeal side that came to an end you know very sadly um sadly because you know when people look at my my case and the record of trial because there were so many holes Mm. a lot of questions have arisen why didn't the appellate courts dig into this so the appellate court only took action on one issue and that was after a very ugly HIV case, um, U.S. versus Gutierrez, another Gutierrez, who was an Air Force oh. uh, straight guy, married, HIV positive. Um, and this is part of the record. So this is where the discussion, he and his wife, they were open swingers. They go to parties. I mean, they sound like fun people to me. <laughs> um, and he's a great guy. I'd love to, I hope I get to meet him at some time because his case broke the, the mold and the definition of... Um, of death, that HIV equaled a death sentence. So where the military had never had the authorization, the charges were always that aggravated assault level, pretty nasty charge. Mm-hmm. Um, because of his case, uh, while mine was under appeal, they dropped HIV related charges to assault and battery, which still doesn't make freaking sense. I mean, if you ask Joe Blow on the street, when, I, when you hear assault and battery, what comes to mind? Well, they usually say you beat the shit out of somebody. Somehow, assault and battery. 
that consummation of battery usually means you did something. You beat him with a bat. You you beat the shit out of somebody. Physical assault. Yeah. Yes. Assault and battery. Mm-hmm. So somehow these idiots, they reduce the charge. So anybody else previous or prior, our charges were also reduced. So that's the only thing that they acted on is because the CAF, the Court of Appeals of the Armed Forces, the high court of the military, had ruled on Gutierrez to drop this aggravated assault, reduce it to only assault and battery. Mine was dropped. They ignored everything else. They ignored no evidence. They ignored the denial of evidence. They ignored everything else in my case that, and I, I will tell you, many civilian appellate attorneys have said, there's no way that would have happened in the civilian world. Um, they would have picked up on it. So I very, very, very gratefully have uh, representation from Wilmer Hale, uh, pretty much the second largest uh, law firm in the country, if not the first. I'm sure some of the partners would say, no, we're the biggest. Wow. Uh, but a very huge and very prominent uh, uh, law firm mm-hmm. with a huge pro bono uh, you know, uh, activity. Uh, so just uh, just last Friday, we had a wonderful talk with Peter Perkowski. Uh, if you've heard me mention Peter, Peter, uh, openly gay, HIV positive, defense attorney. He has his own private practice, but he was one of the counsels for old OutServe SLDN, which is now known as MMAA, the Modern Military Association of America, the LGBT veterans uh, group. Uh, Peter has... I think as, as long as I've known him, well, first, he's the only defender that I know that has actually been a, a defense attorney specifically on HIV cases. Sadly, it's usually too late. Um, they're usually appellate cases, but Peter is the one who it's called shopping out my case to get pro bono assistance. So we had a wonderful talk. They are laser focused on the phylogenetics. Um, Again, we've had a lot of time. The partner uh, who was in charge of my case, I mean, this is just beyond my belief. He is now the general counsel to the National Security Council in the White House, uh, which is the number two, um, I think I can say he's the number two high ranking attorney anywhere next to the president, other than the president's counsel. Um, And a great guy, uh, he actually had gone to school in Newberry Sheck from the Innocence Project. And as long as you and I've been alive, remember DNA was not part of forensic uh, litigation. It was because of the work of Barry and his partner in the Innocence Project that DNA is now in the norm accepted as forensic evidence. And the Innocent Project, you know, now continues their fight for people to be exonerated based on science and based on evidence. Um, They had approached Barry and the Innocence Project they didn't understand the phylogenetics. They now understand it. Wilmore Hale has their own huge science team that would advise them on other corporate issues. They now understand the power of that phylogenetic analysis. And again, time on my side, how exact it is now that yes, it was available when Ken volunteered for it then and it was denied mm-hmm. that it's even more powerful and defined now that if the secretary of the army will release access to my blood and to Chris's blood, which the army owns. So anybody tested and diagnosed uh, with HIV in the active duty forces, there is an initial blood draw that is kept on 
uh, in the lab. Actually, it's the U.S. Military HIV Research Kits of Command. Uh, they own that blood and they keep that forever. It's part of a, a long-term study that they do with the National Institutes of Health. And the scientist that we pulled into court, and she confirmed it, that 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 blood is actually forensically maintained. So it's good to go anytime we can get access to it. Um, they're laser focused on that as the issue and that my retirement was signed. So we think it'll be a court case to the US Court of Claims who is very friendly to military retirement type issues. Um, they of course will not redo the criminal case we're going to go in with my retirement being denied as the issue, the wrong, the harm. Normal discovery, a panel of judges will say, okay, how did that harm occur? And then we get to lay out the criminal pieces that were broken and wrongfully, you know, uh, applied in that case that brought forward the actual harm of me losing my retirement. So you're not trying to reverse the felony charge, or are you? Yes. So they, because that is the first civilian federal court review, mm-hmm. they have the authority to then remand over a military criminal case over to D.C. Circuit Court. At least we think it'll be D.C. Circuit. But mm-hmm. they have that authority, and they're gonna, that's the last piece they're now going to confirm. Who will they remand? Because when a court becomes aware of real wrongdoing, they're supposed to have the professional you know, responsibility to then remand that for a further review. We are going to ask them to uh, act on the retirement. We can justify and show them that, hey, this thing was signed long before this bad personnel action took place. And that's the nuance. And that's the fact. I should have been allowed to retire. If they had prosecuted or informed me of the, of the uh, investigation prior to that, then there would be top cover for the military to say, well, he was under a flagging action because he was under investigation. He couldn't retire, but they didn't do that. I had asked for retirement even before this was an issue. And some little SOB sat on it, probably because they knew for how many years it was sitting there brewing and no one wanted to touch it because there was no evidence. Um, We'll ask for them to act on the retirement, remand the case over for the criminal review. But on top of that, Peter uh, specifically is working with me with my last appeal, which is, an I think it's Article 74 under UCMJ, allows me to appeal to my service secretary. So for me, Secretary uh, Sec Army. And we're waiting UCMJ for is what again? I'm sorry. What is UCMJ? Yep. Uniform Code of Military Justice. Thank you. Okay. Yep. Yep. That that she has the authority under Title Ten, you know, uh, the code, to hear my case. What she does, but it's a clemency request from an officer who has a dismissal, and we have all this evidence that it's going to be very unusual. So I know it's going to be an uphill climb. But even Wilmer and Hale and Peter and some other folks who have looked at it say, holy shit, your facts line up so perfectly that you should be able to give her so much evidence and so much confidence that she will act on it. That we're going to ask her to, in a clemency request, tell her that evidence is available both then and now, that if she wants, she can order the phylogenetics to be done. 
when it comes back and it's not Ken Pinkella, she can easily and rightfully grant me clemency. And when she grants me clemency, it in fact dismisses the charges. Okay, I have a question. So, what about yeah. the time that you could have been working and that income that you weren't able to make? Yeah, so it, it's funny, Peter and I are like, we don't want to put the cart in front of the horse, but yeah. we've already started to think about that. Because I have people ask me, well, what do you want? Yeah. Jennifer, Jennifer, I will tell you right now, my quick answer emotionally is, I just want my retirement. Mm-hmm. I, want, I want to live every day. I'm very grateful for $900 a month, but that's all I live on. Again, I have a roof over my head. I'm lucky that I can do a few things, but I can do nothing. I mean, I have $900 a month that I can pay for my truck, my car insurance, my gas, um, and then try to put, you know, $50 a month away to go to Birmingham. That's that's (laughs) poverty level. My gosh. Um, You're living with your your family, right? You live with your parents? Yep. Yep. Well, my dad just died in October, so it's just been on and on. And and again, you know, people have said, and I've kind of seen that. I, if I had retired, I wouldn't be home. So wherever the universe wanted me, I'm grateful that I could have been home these last five years Mm. because it was a struggle. I say he, it would have been better for him if he had died five years ago. Mm. Um, But we were very lucky that I could be here and do those physical things and physically manage some things that even at the end, um, so this is October, September. So COVID's terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, here's a guy coming out of a nursing home situation. Luckily, COVID negative and COVID was so bad that they were going to kick him out of the hospital anyway because they didn't want to take chances of exposing him to COVID. But he was he was so bad. Um, he had articulated that he wanted to come home to die. And now he was a very, very advanced dementia patient. So for him to have said that, was pretty remarkable, but hospice was right there. We have an incredible hospice organization here. Um, I we got him home that day, um, and he he died in seven days. It was wow. it was it was as if it was meant to be. Mm-hmm. And how lucky I was to be here to handle that, and my mom, and be here to allow him to die at home when so many people at the time, you know, very sadly, couldn't see their loved ones, and I can't imagine. So. You know, I, I try to look at, I try because again, it's just the emotional attack every day. Um, you know, I'm waking up grateful to have a roof over my head, but I'm waking up in my childhood at home. I shouldn't be here, but I'm glad to be here. Um, I'm lucky to have family and friends that have supported me and they know me and, you know, they encourage me when I have my downtimes that I just want to give up and I don't want to fight anymore. Um, I, you know, I'm taking a break from, from really HIV advocacy right now, cause I need to, for my own mental health, um, and just kind of focus on me a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's something that Robert did also, but you know, you know, I'll still, I'll still tweet, I'll still talk, I'll interview, but just, I can't do it every day right now. Um, is there a place where people can follow? I don't you know, I know what you just yes. said, but like if somebody yep. wants to follow your case and see what the latest is. Yeah. So yes, um, I have my personal Twitter, which is, you know, the at Ken Pinkella. I'm open and transparent about that. Mm-hmm. I'm very luckily, uh, I grabbed and uh, created See Me HIV. That's me. So I, uh, I use that a lot of uh, advocacy and people are figuring it. Oh, that's Ken. And I'm having new people join because they know that if they want to put something out, I'll retweet it. Um, 
in, you know, and that's kind of where I've limited it. I've, mm-hmm. I, for years now, I've been saying, I'm going to get off Facebook. I haven't even logged in. I don't know when I'm not a Facebook believer. Um, so I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not active on Facebook at all. And it was because of the death. I, I'll say that it was because of the death threats. I had more death threats on Facebook that I just said, screw it. I'm not, oh, I'm out of here. God. I'm not doing this shit. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, Rolling Stone was that great article. That's I'm right. Super- Yep. So grateful for, you know, the board and the family with uh, the Elizabeth Taylor AIDS Foundation and their commitment to HIV is not a crime. And to take that and really not say mean something, but take it to another level with the power of her name and the foundation. I will uh, link, by the way, that video in this descri- the description of this podcast. So that will be available easy for people. Yeah. To- and when you watch it um, again, because, you, you know, because you know me. Yeah, it'll probably it'll probably affect you. Plus, you know, your compassion anyway, and your person living with HIV and, you know, your advocacy has changed people's lives. I love I love when you post the beautiful notes that you get, you know, every day I get a lovely note at least once a day. It's amazing. I'm very happy. And I will tell you, I get some incredible notes and then and then I get some incredible uh, people ask for favors. And the, the favor that I get the most is right now, I will tell you, Sean Strube we found out that there is a pretty nasty case going to happen to a, a person in Ohio. And I've done this before. And I don't know why I seem to be able to relate to them. Um, they'll ask me and Sean has asked me if I would talk to this, this, this person. Um, and that benefit of I've walked these shoes. And at that moment, it doesn't matter economics. It doesn't matter race. It doesn't matter anything. It's another human being living with HIV and not understanding why the world is attacking me right now. And this threat of going to jail and this threat of losing everything is so unique that it's been, it's, I think it's been like, it's been like a beautiful gift that I've been able to give back to sadly, the few that are going through this. Um, yeah, no. That's so great. That's yeah. great that you're able to do that. Um, yep. I have, I have, uh, one other question, and this comes yeah. up in my advocacy all the time, yeah. um, and I get so tired of answering it, but I always wonder because of all the other advocates out there, I don't know if they're getting this question all the time, but it's not something anybody talks about at any of the conferences. Everyone asks me like every single day, do you think there's going to be a cure? Do you think there's going to be a cure? And I just always say, we don't even talk about this. Like, I'm, I don't think so. Like, I don't know. What do you think? What are your thoughts on that? <laughs> That's funny. I didn't know you get those because Constantly. I am, I, I'm one of those people that does the hashtag. I fucking love science. I'm that. <laughs> um, did you have a chance to meet Talia Monique, Dr. Talia? I don't know. I don't know. Absolutely. I mean, she is, she, it's so funny because I'm working with her all the time, but she's a friend. She's like known as the most beautiful scientist in the world. Talia is just, I mean, she's stunning. And then her heart and everything about her. And she's been working on HIV and HIV research. That's what she did her whole career in. Um, she is beautiful. She teaches bioethics at Fordham University. And she lets me speak once a semester. So we talk about this and this idea of a cure. I believe in science. And I think with the advent of just the last, I'd say seven to eight years, and now layer on COVID because the mRNA as a tool has been around for years. Um, we've had adenovirus applications, you know, for generations. And because of all the work, and it's funny because yesterday they did the tribute for Timmy and they put that beautiful bench up 
um, in Palm Springs. And, you know, you know, and to have been so grateful to say that I was a friend. Um, I do believe a cure is coming. And I think at any time we are closer than any time. I don't, I, even five years, that's like tomorrow for us. Mm-hmm. Um, because of science, we're alive and having these great conversations that I, we can't hurt anybody. Um, we, we're getting that message out there now globally. Um, it's changing lives where people are, are happy and healthy and having relationships and having families because they can have children. And, and, and just from that message of, of the science and how the advocates translated it, mm-hmm. that we all kind of knew that it, we had those low viral levels, we could pass the virus on. We all kind of knew that. And then with the advent of the partner studies, it was confirmed. And even though we had to fight a little bit of the science guys, because they didn't want to say it, but when they finally said it and, and, you know, and then Bruce and everybody in the development of U equals U and I, I, I really do, Jennifer, I, I think we are closer than ever before with, if not just the functional cure, which a lot of people, science will say, that's what you and I have. Right. Functional cures, because we are able to keep such a low viral load. Viral suppression is key, mm-hmm. but to such a level that we've come up with this undetectable, you know, uh, moniker, but, but it's a status that the little machine can't read and find enough active virus in our blood that we are undetectable. So no, not enough active virus to either cause harm to us or to pass on to others. But there are so many other pieces, you know, w- between Timmy's, cure with the CCR5 inactivation in the replication with Dennis. Who's the guy in London? I just forgot. I haven't met him yet. I've talked I don't to know. Him. Yeah. I can't think of who the London. I feel so bad. I don't want to just call him the London patient. <laughs> I know. I feel bad. I know it's like a brother. Um, he should be, but you know, so they've replicated it. And then in the last six months, you saw the news. I, is she a German woman who has, as we've known, there are long-term non-progressors but she has been off meds for so long and wasn't kind of caught in this loop, but then she was at some study or her doctor like, Holy shit, what you've not even been on meds and you're such a, that she's been naturally undetectable, which then comes back to this validation of the CCR five inactivation uh, from both parents. And how does that affect our bodies? Um, I, I really do. I think we are closer than ever before the meds from just two weeks ago that they've been able to now actually quantify the level of reservoir of HIV in our bodies. Cause even you and I have a reservoir, right? It's inactive, right? But they've now been able to break that code to now quantifiably measure that. And they remember the old uh, kick and kill right around. And we now know there are drugs that will activate it. And then with your ARTs is able to encapsulate and kill it. And your body just will learn from that. Is that the next level of functional cure? Because that's happening right now. But for so it's the- not necessarily a serum that we're going to have an injection in our arm and then it's going to be gone. Like, no, like I, I think the vaccination is going to happen. Now you saw the study, so which is very near and dear to my heart. A lot of people don't know. Uh-huh. The, the vaccine study is 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 financed and controlled through the army budget did you know that no the u.s the u.s military hiv lab 
is really a very large financial funnel for a lot of that research work. Specifically, the uh, the, the big vaccine studies that happened in South Africa, mm-hmm. the very first ones that came back years ago that didn't work out so well, and yet there were some, some uh, monikers there that decided to change it, improve it, and they started the other study. I mean, it was it six weeks ago? 90, was it 94%? In trial one, it's the highest level of efficacy they've ever had out of a stage one. And they're already in stage two. They had, auto, I think they had automatic uh, um, approval from the last time to go, but it's the highest efficacy out of a stage one HIV vaccine. And we're vaccine there Vaccine meaning preventing HIV. Yes, People yes, that do prevent- not have HIV, they take a vaccine and this prevents them from ever getting it. But it's still the ones mm-hmm. with HIV it's, Correct. That we're still working on. We still, but that's again, what I, yep. so I'm kind of what, yeah. bringing this conversation together about the science side of it is that we have 40 years of history and it's all moving in such an incredible direction. And because of people like Timothy Brown and our London patient and these other folks and the dedication of the Talia's and the Ben Young's and all these people, I just, uh, I, I, I personally, I'm always optimistic because I hashtag fucking love science. <laughs> um, I, uh, I, it's just, and, and with COVID, you know, because they knew what COVID was, they, you know, it's COVID, COVID-19 because the year was discovered, you know, unlike the dipshit who said, well, I did um, We knew where it was. They knew what it looked like. Um, we could see it in the, you know, as a military moniker, if we could see it, see it we could kill it. And that was, remember when they first got the first picture of HIV, it was in the cover of Time Magazine. Mm-hmm. You remember that? So we knew what it looked like. We knew how it had adapted. We knew how it got into the cell. And it's just taking time. I just think so many things are now coalescing at the right moment. And maybe because of yet another virus, COVID-19, there just seems to be so much information coming out right now. I personally am optimistic that for you and I, I think you and I in our lifetime will go from functional cure to cure. I really do. I guess my, well, I don't like to put a lot of energy into thinking about it. So people ask me that and I say, I don't think about it because I'm fine with the way it is. I have no problem taking a pill for the rest of my life. It's fine. Exactly. But then I think of herpes and I think of viruses. When you go to the doctor, you have a virus. What do they say? Take Tylenol, go home, get some rest. Like there's no... There's no, you know, when you have a a bacterial infection, you take an antibiotic. When you have a virus, there is nothing. So I'm like, this is a virus. So are they really, I mean, where's the cure for herpes? You know, I, so that's where my mind goes. And that's why I'm always just like, I'm not, you know, people ask me all the time and I just say, I'm not, I'm not waiting for it, but gosh, if they find a way to make that happen, great. But I, I don't, I don't feel like I'm going to see it. I don't know why I'm so pessimistic because I'm not typically like that with most things, but and this I, case, agree I just you, guess right. I'm not that worried. Yeah, I was so yeah, and, and and I absolutely agree with you. I have that I love science thing, so I track it, but I don't put energy in it because I know how lucky we are that one pill a day. So I, I don't since I see your I, I like the joke. I only take four pills a day. Oh, yeah. I, I literally I take yeah. I take more I take more meds for arthritis and allergies than I do for anything else. But I have I take the big four: allergies, asthma. Um, arthritis and AIDS. <laughs> so that's, what, I mean, I joke, I call four A's, obviously it's not AIDS, it's HIV, but I take the four A's. I take four taking, also. I take HIV, yeah. I take one for herpes and I take uh, 
uh, allergies. And then I take yeah. one for my restless leg syndrome. It's uh, yeah. So yeah. I mean, yeah. And have you, have you ever had any side effects to any of your meds? Nothing. Neither have I. No. Well, actually I will lie. The very first night when I was put on a triplo, I, I don't know how I didn't kill myself because I somehow got downstairs from a third story house and my dog talked to me and that was it. It was like a great, I'm telling you, it was like a great mushroom trip. You know, it was my, was in, I was on that for about four days and it was horrible. Yeah. yeah that, I took, that was happening. Yeah. I there, took, it was like, I my, felt like I was in a box that was like muffled and, oh, it was awful. I, I, I've had a lot of people too, including my doc at the time. Cause I then like three years later took myself off of it with my doc mm-hmm. um, because of the Sestiva report and the kidney uh, functionality, you know, damage it was doing, but I no, you know, knock on wood. I've never had, never had a freaking thing. Nothing. I shouldn't say you that know? I don't have, I haven't had side effects. I haven't had anything like um, affecting my kidneys or liver or anything like that, but yeah. I have had, um, yeah, with Triumec, I had like a little bit of a headache, like an hour later. And then I got on Devato, which took out the Abacavir and I just am yeah. on the two, Lamivudine and Dilutagravir. I never know if I'm pronouncing this correctly, correctly, yeah. but um, yeah. So I'm on just two now in one pill and my, I'm still undetectable and I absolutely have no side effects. It's like, I tell people it's like, I'm swallowing, I don't know, like a, nothing like a vitamin. I'm even a vitamin I feel would give me more of a side effect. I don't feel anything. So nothing. Yeah. yeah. What do you think about the, uh, the injectable? Uh, oh, I'm that. really like, it's funny. We talk about that a lot. If it, if it requires me going to the clinic to get the injection, forget it. Like yeah. if I could do it at home. Great. Yeah. But I'm not yeah. going to go to the doctor every month and get an, exactly. or I think like they're working on every three months, even that, I don't know if I even feel like dealing with that. I don't know. It's, I hasn't been, um, I haven't been offered it yet. And I, I don't know when I will, I'm on low income, low income, uh, California state medical insurance. So it might not be offered for a while. So, but I, how do you feel about it? My, my VA doc actually talked to me about it and I, cause she's really funny. She's getting to know me a little better and she knows sometimes I have access to more information than she does. And we've been talking about the injectable and she, she's a science wonk. So she reads a lot, which I just, I love. Um, how do you pronounce it? I don't know. Oh yeah. Know. It's like Cabanuva. I think something like that. Is okay, it, go ahead. That, I didn't even know it actually had a formula or name yet. Yeah. It um, I, I told her, and it's funny you should say that. I said, look, I grew up in a family of diabetics. If, as long as I know I can just give it to myself, I'll do it. You know, I'll do it. But if I have to go to the, no, I'm not going to, because I have a 90 day supply of one pill a day. I'd rather just do that. It shows up in the mail. Yep. If I don't have to go to the doctor, I don't like going to the doctor. Yeah. I'm one of those patients, but if it, if the efficacy is there, um, you know, in, in, in Peter, it's really funny because you know, my HIV support group, me, Peter Staley, Sean, if you're, if Peter gives me the, okay, <laughs> I, um, you know, and we talk about actually, actually we have a meeting, we have a meeting Thursday. I'm going to ask him what he thinks about the uh, injectable. I'll get back to you on that. Oh but, yeah. Um, Peter yeah. Staley, say who he is really quick for people. That so, don't. you know, one of the, one of the, one of the prominent startup guys from act up, um, if people know and either read the the book or saw the movie, mm-hmm. um, he's a big, he big deal. Okay. As are you, but I just yeah, yeah it's neat to know that you guys are all connected. Well, we all live next to each other, so I You're live kidding. in the west. No, we all live next to each other. Yeah, that's so funny. We all live up here. I didn't um, know that. Yeah, yeah, I knew he lived I, near a lake because he's uh, Brenda. Brenda Emily is friends with him. 
Oh yeah. Okay. Brenda. Sure. So yeah. Cool. So I know that yeah. she's babysat his dog and she, so she's, yeah, she said he lives on this beautiful house, like overlooking a lake. So that's, yeah. that's about what I know about him. We're, we're connected on social media, but I don't know him. I've just watched oh, cool. his, um, documentaries. Yeah. So, well, Ken, I cannot thank you enough for doing this. This information is so valuable and I want to follow your case. I'm obviously going to watch the Elizabeth, uh, I'm thinking Glazer in my head. Nope. Elizabeth, yeah. uh, Taylor. Taylor. Yeah. Um, would you call it a documentary or what is it exactly? Um, it is. They actually are. They're little documentaries. They're, I think, four or five minutes uh, on those of us who have been criminalized. And right now it's Robert Suttle and then mine just came out. Who else are they going to do? Do you know? I don't know yet. There are about eight of us uh, in this little council that they've pulled together. Um, I think they had dedicated to doing either one or two a year. I think they may be doing something else this year. I could be wrong. I know, again, Robert was last year. I'm now in March. I came out in March. Um, there should be, I think, maybe another one this year. And I don't know who, they, who they've who they picked. Because sadly, some of the stories are just horrific. Yeah. Just horrific. Oh, um, yeah. I mean, there's yeah. people sitting in jail right now accused of giving HIV to somebody where they didn't. And they are there for who knows how long. Yeah, I mean, we've got sex workers, yeah. sex workers who were hit with just disgusting sex uh, registry violations, like for life, that have children. And mm-hmm. it is just, and no, at the end of the day, like all of our stories, mm-hmm. the virus was never passed on. None of us actually infected another person, but yet all of us were criminalized and have lost everything. And like Robert and others, sadly live as a sex offender with a registration over their head for 15, 25 or life. Insane. Just, it is insane, but I can't thank you enough for always giving your voice and your life to this and your family. And I can't wait to meet the husband. I've never met him. Uh, Well, he's just a little North of you right now. (laughs) Is he in the Montreal side? Montreal. Yeah. He's Montreal. Yeah. Oh, that's right up the road. Uh, Yeah. He's He's like five hours away. Yeah. He's right up there. I will, gosh, let you go and go enjoy the rest of your weekend. But thank you so much. In fact, I'm going to make this a two-parter because this is really um, such great information. I want to split it up into two weeks. So, well, yeah. good. Everybody. Use me as you want. You know, I will. <laughs> <laughs> I will use you. Yeah, for no, for sure. Like your case is monumental. I'm just going to keep following it and hope for good things for you because you deserve it. You've worked so hard to get out of this, and um, obviously, you were you were wronged in the worst way possible. It's incredible what happened to you. Unreal. Thank you. You know, I I adore you and I love what you do. Um, If anything, I'd like to make sure you have a wonderful Mother's Day tomorrow, mom. Thank you. Yep, absolutely. And uh, anytime you want to chat about something and I'll send you some stuff we're doing on the federal law, HR 1305 and I'll keep you up on that stuff. Yeah. Let me know for sure. All right, Ken. Well, kisses from California. This is from New York. <laughs> okay, we'll see you online. <laughs> okay. Okay, bye, Ken. You dear. Thank you so much again for listening. And thank you so much again, Ken, for taking the time to do this podcast. If you wouldn't mind giving me a quick rate and review, I would so much appreciate it. I hope you guys have a fantastic week. Stay safe, stay beautiful. See you next Monday.